invite you to turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Right after Hebrews 9. Seeing if you're listening to We come upon our final doctrine in the faith and practice. Consequently, it's probably why there's more people here today. You're, yay, we're finally close to the end of this. Um, as I did last week, I, I settled on a text that spurs us to consider the things that our doctrine is talking about. While the faith and practice calls this doctrine very generally worship, as I read it, uh, I began to discover it was predominantly about corporate worship in particular. Only the first statement seems to be a general description of worship, which happens, as I am sure you all know, in all areas of life and not just corporately. And we will be considering a passage in Hebrews, uh, but before we do so, let's understand a little more the background of the book of Hebrews. It's like 2020 COVID restrictions on steroids. <laughs> there is blatant, systematic persecution of Christians, both by Jews and by Roman rulers. This is why throughout the book, the author goes through great lengths to demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus over all things. He's so much better than the Old Testament because he is the answer to the Old Testament. He is the Sabbath rest. He is the final sacrifice. He is the Messiah. And the hearers in Hebrews were, were apparently tempted to revert back into Judaism because the persecution was so bad that if they went back to the acceptable religion of Judaism, the persecution would stop. And so the author makes some pointed remarks to not do that, to not forfeit Christ. Quite the contrary, the author seeks to turn their heads and hearts from fear and from anxiety, from guilt from the times when they may have wavered, and that's kind of the theme under our text this morning. So I invite you to stand with me, if you're able to, one last time, as we hear the Word of God in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, and without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, these people are gathered here today, yes, to seek fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, and perhaps that is of greater significance than we might think at first, but we've also come to meet with you, to experience your presence, 
to hear your voice. Father, we pray that your spirit would have been working in our hearts and minds all week long as we come to this place. Father, we do hear your voice in our personal prayers. We do see you working as was expressed at times of testimony. But also we open up your word very intentionally to hear your voice. So I pray that you would not fail us as we know you will not, but instead that you would remove me and say what it is that you desire. Father, may we respond accordingly, obediently. Thank you that you pursue us out of love and help us to pursue you out of love. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We've made the case, I believe, at the forefront of this series, and actually throughout this series, that you and I are made to worship. Everyone who is called by my name, says God, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, you and I were created to glorify God. To bring him glory. Worship is the vehicle between you and God's glory. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. You and I were formed for God. That is your purpose. That is my purpose. That means when we live lives not living up to our purpose... We will be unsatisfied. And so what is worship? The very first sentence in our doctrine statement says this, that worship is the adoring response of heart and mind to the Spirit of God. What I do love about that definition is that it leaves it open. Because like I said, the statement will turn to particularly one significant form of worship that Christians practice, namely corporate worship, what we're doing right now. But what I love about this opening definition is that, again, at its core, worship is the adoring response of heart and mind to the Spirit of God. And the way I know that you and I are formed or made or created to be worshipers is because even though you or I may not adoringly respond in heart and mind to the Spirit of God 24-7. We are nevertheless 24-7 adoringly responding in heart and mind to something. And you might say, no, that's not true. Sometimes I'm just depressed. And I'm just saying sometimes adoration leads persons or people to depression when it's not expressed or sent towards the right object of worship. King Saul was an ardent adorer of his own kingship. And he was miserable and led to do horrible, despicable things because of it. Because he was either worshiping himself or maybe power and fame in his position. Judas was a worshiper of either A, money, or B, an agenda that he had planned for Jesus and his worship his adoration of either of those things eventually 
led to training in Jesus for such things. Which to me has always been a very physical and visible representation of the spiritual truth that you and I are guilty of at times. We may not have been there to collect the money and deliver Jesus, but what do you and I trade in Jesus for when we worship? But, when people direct their affections and their adoration to God, then we start heading into the halls of Hebrews 11, right? We start getting God-sized dreams because they are God-sent. We start feeling the God-sized joy and experiencing God-sized peace because we start living into our purpose. I want you to hear this about worship from the get-go. Again, it's more than just corporate worship, which is vitally important as this passage will uncover. But secondly, worship is an essential concept of our lives. It's paramount to understand, because it's quite truly the lifeline to our souls. And I don't say that because it's catchy. I say that because it's the only words I can, I can find to express this truth. It is the lifeline to our souls. If you and I are formed to worship God, we must understand and practice worship so that our fulfillment takes place. First, let's read the doctrine and have it fresh in our minds, and then let's begin unpacking our text. The tenth doctrine in the faith and practice says, Worship is the adoring response of heart and mind to the Spirit of God. The meaning for worship brings a personal and corporate renewal in edification and communion of believers and a witness of the gospel to the unconverted. We recognize the value of silence to center our thoughts upon God. We believe the Spirit speaks to worshipers through persons he has prepared and selected, whose messages may be given in various modes by men or women, children or adults. We believe God calls some persons to a special preaching ministry, which the church should respectfully receive. Friends, observe the first day of the week for corporate worship and for rest. So you see how it opens again, describing worshiping generally, and then the rest is on corporate worship. Now, this is a medical approach, if you will. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, here's what worship is, statement. Here's what we do in worship, point, point, point. Here's the day we observe worship. Which makes sense because the doctrines in our faith and practice are novel ideas meant to express what they are. Who is God? Our doctrine had a statement on that. What's human redemption about? Our doctrine had a statement on that. And so what is worship? So, we will be now, like last week, leaning into the essence of this statement by means of unpacking the passage of Scripture we read to begin with, Hebrews 10, 19-25. And that passage has three primary movements in relation to worship. Our passage deals with the grounding of our worship, secondly, the mindset of our worship, and then finally, the way of our worship. The grounding, the mindset, and the way of our worship. Consider with me again verses 19 through 21. As we look at the grounding of our worship, 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so I, I've lied to you. I wanted to make you feel real comfortable. First, I said there's only three primary movements we're looking at. But now, in each of those three, there's another three steps. So we're actually going through nine points today. You're welcome. So, we've been purchased so we can proceed since we have a priest. We've been purchased so we can proceed since we have a priest. Do you have confidence to approach God? I know I've used this illustration before, so bear with me in the short personal story if you remember it, but I remember approaching the pulpit at the Nazarene church where I grew up at. I saw my mentor had taped a personal note to the pulpit that only he could see every Sunday. It asked the one preaching, have you earned the right to be up here today? And I never asked how Hunter answered that question, but for me it was always a no. And furthermore, I told myself, if I ever started saying yes, I need to check my spirit. Because before God, Jesus has earned my right for he to produce any fruit through me. If you and I ever get cocky and get proud and self-righteous because we think we're pretty good Christians, we need to remember how Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, worked with his disciples, and that was through service. However, the author here in Hebrews is brushing up on a paradox in this world that though we do not impress God, nor do we curry favor with him, nevertheless we've been purchased by him. Dean was actually talking about this in Sunday school. He highly values us. He favors us so much so that it should give us confidence, because he purchased us by means of the blood of Jesus. As I said earlier, Hebrews has this theme of Jesus being better than everything else in the Old Testament. Consider Hebrews 9.12 with me. It says, he entered once for all into the holy places. Seems like we're saying a song about that. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you hear the comparison in that? Because there's a lot of words about blood and calves and goats, and I'm lost, Kevin. Let me see if I can help you. (laughs) The author makes a reference back to the Old Testament system, the blood of goats and calves. This is what Jewish people used to do. Find unblemished, untarnished animals, bring them to the temple or the tabernacle, slit their throats, Say to God, their blood for my blood. This is what I deserve. I give you this animal in my stead. That's the Kevin's Lane version paraphrase of what happened. But Jesus is better than that. He comes once for all. And he secures an eternal redemption. The author would go on to say, For if by the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now, this is Kevin. I had to read this. Let me get the message. (laughs) Let me get the new century version. 
Again, Old Testament, if we do these customs, it sanctifies or it makes clean the flesh or the body. Purification of the flesh. It makes clean the body. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you hear the contrast of how Jesus is better than the Old Testament? Old Testament, we substituted animals. New Covenant, Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. And as man presents himself for our sake, animals gave us a clean slate to the flesh, Christ gives a clean slate to the soul the spirit or the conscience. Christ secures an eternal redemption by his blood. So we have been purchased so we can proceed back in our primary text, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through his flesh. Jesus is better. And just as Jesus said in the gospel accounts, he's the new wineskin, right? He is not an addition to the Old Testament ways. He's altogether new. That's why there is no temple in Jerusalem. That's why we're not practicing Jewish feasts. We'll talk about Jesus as our priest here in a moment. But we don't have priests like the Old Testament talked about. Jesus is a new and living way. I like this. See, the Old Testament was all about killing animals and killing sin. But our covenant is founded on resurrection and new life. Yes, let's put sin to death, but let's take on Christ to live. See, it's a living way, not a dead way. See, in the Old Testament, it's like your sins were storing up every time, and you lived from sacrifice to sacrifice to sacrifice. But in the way of Jesus, he dies and forgives once and for all, and our lives hopefully don't consist any longer of milestones from sacrifice to sacrifice, but altars of sanctification, of maturity, of growth in Christ. And Jesus gave us this new way through the curtain. Other translations here say veil. That is through his flesh. Seems the author is connecting the curtain, the veil, to Jesus. He's a symbol here that just says, the veil to the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Remember that passage that always read for us? At the death of Christ, we suddenly, the Holy of Holies is now available for all to enter in. Not just priests. We're part of that all, aren't we? <laughs> we can enter in through Christ, through his blood. We are invited and we can proceed. So here are those key words. We have been purchased so we can proceed because we have a priest. Here again in verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. The author of Hebrews actually makes a remark earlier in his letter about Jesus being a priest over the house of God. Hebrews 3, 5 and 6, again, shows us a contrast. Here's the Old Testament person symbol thing. Here's how Jesus is the better way. We see this in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. 
but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. I was thinking about this as we sang that first hymn. We have come into this house. What house do we have? The people. We are the house of God. We can sing that on a hill and still be theologically correct. <laughs> do you hear the difference in these two verses, the contrast? Very, very generally, Moses was a great guy in God's house, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. If I told you that Joe was a good worker in the business, but Bob is a good worker over the business, you hear the subtle shift of authority. Now Moses is what we Quakers like to call a weighty friend. A leader among equals. In the case of Moses, a very prominent leader among equals. But Christ is greater. He's over God's house. He has authority over God's house. He's our priest. He's a great priest. Do you ever feel like pastors or preachers might talk down to you? Don't answer that. <laughs> Hear me on this. Christ is the pastor's boss. Christ is the president's boss. Christ is every authority's boss. And the book of Hebrews tells us about this priest. He just told us that he purchased us by his blood. Now, if that doesn't give you enough uh, confidence to warm you up, why I don't why why I wouldn't know. But the author says this too, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And I just thought about this before I get up to preach. I usually pray the Lord's Prayer. It usually seems to cover everything I want to say to Jesus. But I, I just thought, what did Jesus pray before he preached? <laughs> He has been tempted in every way we are. He has been there before you in your temptations. And he has purchased you by his own blood. That should embolden us. That should help us to have confidence to always approach God. He has purchased, purchased us. We should proceed because of our priest. That's the grounding of our worship. That's our basis. That's why we can worship We've been purchased. We can proceed in confidence to be received in favor and kindness and familiarity. Jesus wants you. What's the mindset of our worship as we enter, though? That's the next point in verses 22 and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our mindset should be one of confidence, consecration, and confession. See, the author has given us our grounding. We've been purchased. We should proceed. We have a priest. And that should put into our mindset great confidence because of this grounding. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You and I are called to act faithfully on our confidence. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Or are you like me sometimes, thinking, God, Almighty God, who became 
flesh and shed blood for me is somehow harder on me and has more questionable motives than I do in dealing with my own kids. And if you don't have kids, maybe your friends or loved ones that you would never betray or abandon, or friends, God loves you more than that. God loves you more than that. The boldness and confidence that you and I have as a Christian to approach God goes only so far as we truly believe in God's love for us. The amount of confidence that you have only goes as far as you believe God loves you. I pray that our services we do here truly facilitates God's presence, and I'm trusting it does, and I'm trusting God says to each person who has accepted him, not only are you welcome here, but you are wanted here. You are wanted here. He has shed his blood for you, so take confidence. But in, the, in that purchase of Christ was not only our purchase of salvation, but the grounding of our sanctification, a big word for maturity, growth in Christ. <clears throat> our mindset in worshiping God needs to be one of consecration. We have confidence that God loves us and wants us, and now we know that he works in us Consecration, as we see in our passage, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what we talked about back in Hebrews 9. The, the animals made the body okay. Okay, the dead has been cleared. Now let's start growing debt and come back again for a sacrifice later. <laughs> but Jesus makes the soul clean. He makes the conscience clean. Jesus makes it possible where you don't have to accrue debt anymore. He didn't cancel the payment and pay off the lender. But he's inviting us to, to live a life without needing a lender. Now, we still sin. It is a mystery. It's argued about with theologians. Can we live sinless lives? Well, I know this. Paul seems to say in places like Romans 6.19, he says, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Don't know about you, but it sounds like Paul thinks we have a choice, right? Like, sounds like Paul thinks that the gospel, Christ, means that the natural bent of sin that we have can be redeemed. Now, it starts with baby steps, Right? In a situation where you're tempted to lie, think I'm going to be honest here, actually, instead of lie. <laughs> think I'm not going to watch that show because I'll probably get more harm than good out of it. Think I'm, I'm not going to dwell on that situation anymore. You start with baby steps. Paul says it starts leading to more and more sanctification. Suddenly to where we can be, then begin to say, the last time I sinned and that one habit that had me enslaved was years ago. Christ wiped the soul clean more than the body. Our mindset needs to be confidence. Jesus wants us. Consecration. Christ wiped us clean. And now confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Friends, what I'm doing right now is I need to confess the confidence. Christ did purchase us by his blood. The God of the universe, the sovereign over all, 
wants us enough to die for us, God will meet with us and purify us. God has redeemed us, is redeeming us, and will redeem the world. And for the Hebrews and their persecution for believing this, are being encouraged to not waver here. Because even if the world around us looks bad, the God who became flesh to die for us and rose again to conquer the grave, if he's promised us the future he's promising us, I would say he's faithful. I would say he's faithful. You can believe him. You can take him at his word. So our mindset in worship is to confess our hope in Christ, to confess that everything about Christ is true. The grounding of our worship was that we were purchased by the blood of Jesus, so we may proceed under our great priest, Jesus. The mindset of our worship is that because of our grounding, we can have confidence. That grounding also consecrates us, and it lets us confess that Jesus is who he says he is. So if we have our grounding, and if we have our mindset, what is the way of our worship? The scripture says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you have OCD, you're going to be irritated the rest of the sermon. <laughs> the way of our worship is to inspire, letter I, but then the left, next two are E's. The way of our worship is to inspire, engage, and expect. Inspire, engage, and expect. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? One singular commandment. They wanted to put it in a box. Just give us the top one. Jesus responded with what? Two. And he says they are to be held of equal importance. There is no top one. There's two. Here with me in Matthew 22, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Hear this. God places our relationships, our human relationships, on the same level as the God and man relationship. You hear that? They're of equal importance. That's why it doesn't work. You cannot be a hermit Christian. <laughs> you cannot be a person who says, me and God are okay, but I have beef with those people and that church and these enemies, but me and God, we're tight. When by Jesus' answer here, sorry, but he's going to say, no, you're not. <laughs> you are not tight with me. While you have animosity towards these people, you're not. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. You hear that? You take that seriously enough? Jesus seems to. Because it sounds like to me Jesus is saying, before you worship me, Fix the problem with your fellow man. It's interesting, the author of Hebrews here has been grounding us and mentally preparing his readers 
about the confidence to be had in what God has done. But then when it comes to the way of worship about doing something, it's about people. You see that? And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. This is worship in God's economy, inspiring others to love and good works. So here's the logic. It's very hard. Are you ready? How can we inspire one another to do this? Well, it involves, obviously, being with one another. you follow that logic? Hard logic, I know. That's why I went to college. The author says, we must inspire one another, and in order to do that, we must engage with meeting with one another, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It is expected of the author that his hearers will already be versed in the habit of meeting with one another. You know, the synagogue system, many believe, came up between the time of the Old and New Testaments, probably due to Israel being conquered and dispersed. Synagogues rose up to fill in for folks who couldn't travel to Jerusalem or to the temple, maybe depending on who was conquering Israel at the time, but perhaps there was no temple or it was just hard. So the synagogue served as communal places to ensure the traditions of Jews would not be lost, but would be taught. So with that already in place, and then you have Jesus saying at the Last Supper, a meal, a ceremony, do this often in remembrance of me. So with this urge of Jesus and with the synagogue, a place that Jesus attended and his disciples attended and disciples after him like Paul kept attending, it only made sense to just marry the two, right? Jesus wants us to meet often. We already have a system in place. So it's likely the author of Hebrews here is, of course, referring to Christians meeting together for worship. And he says to the audience here, again, under persecution, tempted to forsake Christianity, to make it out under the persecution, the author has been cramming Christ is better over and over in our passage. The grounding of our worship is Jesus. He he has purchased us. And because of him, we can proceed under our great priest. Again, the mindset of our worship must be confidence, must be consecration, must be confessing Christ and nobody else. So continue to inspire one another to love and good works and engage in meeting with one another. This is the place where we can encourage one another right here. Lastly, the way of worship is one of expectation. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, in the Old Testament, there were many days of the Lord. It meant a day of judgment over evildoers and a vindication for the righteous. And in the New Testament, I can think of two prominent days. A day of judgment that Jesus spoke about coming in 70 AD when the temple would fall and Jerusalem would be seized, and then the last day, or the end of days. What day is the author of Hebrews referring to here? I know my preaching is bad, I know. <laughs> what day is the author of Hebrews referring to? Probably either or, but for the saints enduring the persecution they were, perhaps it was a day closer to the time of writing. And if you read throughout the book of Hebrews, it seems like the author is talking about the sacrificial system was still 
a present system. So I'm assuming he's writing before 70 AD. And so my guess is whether the author knew it or not, or perhaps the Holy Spirit had in mind the day of 70 AD when Christians would be vindicated because the prophet they followed would prove true from all of his remarks he said about the temple falling. And Jesus being the access to the true house of God, not the temple. But this does translate to us, because we come together to inspire one another to love and good works. We engage here to do this, and we can meet also in a spirit of expectation that God will meet with us. And we can expect a final day, a last day, where the righteous again will be vindicated, and the judgment will come on the unrepentant. So we come to the end of our text, and again, we also see in our doctrine, um, in our faith and practice, if you are really interested, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 later this week and see what um, our faith and practice doctrine is taken from. So we covered the first line, basically, the general description of worship already. But why do we meet together? I like what our doctrine says. The meeting or worship brings a personal and corporate renewal and edification and communion of believers and a witness of the gospel to the unconverted. So in other words, to connect the passage to the statement here, you could say that our meaning grounds us in the proper mindset. Sometimes it, it re-grounds us. I just made that word up, re-grounds <laughs> It reestablishes our confidence in God and in our consecration of personal and corporate renewal and in our confession, both confession for our strengthening and for the witness of unconverted. So then practically, how does all this take place? Well, the faith we believe in what's happening, what's the practice? What's the practice of, of, of how this happening? What's bringing all this about? And that's the rest of this statement, we recognize the value of silence to center our thoughts upon God. We believe the Spirit speaks to worshipers, worshipers through persons he has prepared and selected, whose message may be given in various modes by men, women, children, or adults. We had a child pray for us before Sunday school today. That was really exciting. We believe God calls some persons to a special preaching ministry, which the church should respectfully receive, friends observe the first day of the week for corporate worship and for rest. So again, these word statements are inspired from places like 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. But I want to end with these two verses in Hebrews again. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why? Because you and I are designed for it. We need it. You and I were created to glorify God, to bring in glory, and worship is the vehicle between you and God's glory. You and I were formed for God. That is your purpose. That is my purpose. That means when we live lives not living to our purpose, we will be unsatisfied. Worship is satisfaction. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the joy and the privilege it is to meet together as a people. 
We thank you that we are the house of God and you are the priest over the house of God. Father, we, th- we thank you for the vulnerability and the transparency we can have here. We thank you for your word that you speak to us, you continue to minister to us, especially in ways at times we don't expect. Father, we love you, we thank you, we pray that as we worship you throughout this week, that our hearts and minds would be drawn to meet with the people again next week so that we can come and be satisfied in your presence. We enjoy you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.